This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Muir. On this week's show, Gordon Black, the man who brought the Nutribullet to the UK. And it really captured everyone's imagination. On reinventing his business, from bags to blenders. This one did well because it's small, very powerful, like me. On how to pinpoint the next big thing. We realised that the global economy is a reality and we looked for trends abroad. On selling his family business to a Chinese firm. I think it's the Asian century. And what it's like supplying the UK's biggest retailers. The state of the relationship between retailers and suppliers now is uh, is like armed neutrality or a state of, of war. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. Hey up everyone and welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're joined on Skype from Yorkshire by Gordon Black. And it is his cathartic book, From Bags to Blenders, that has sparked today's chat. He is a proud Yorkshireman and former chairman of his father's business, Peter Black. In its heyday, it was a £300 million company that sold footwear, toiletries and pharmaceuticals. Today, you'll know Gordon Black as the businessman who bought Nutribullet to the UK. Gordon, very quickly, for the unenlightened among us, and I can't imagine there are many... Can you explain what a Nutribullet is in five words? Yeah, a Nutribullet is a blender. And uh, this one did well because it's small, very powerful, like me. (laughs) (laughs) And it really captured everyone's imagination. How did Nutribullet come about? Explain how it came to the UK. My company, I've been round the block. I've been in business for 50 years. And Peter Black was our family business. My father died um, over 40 years ago, and we built it up, we floated it, we took it private, and we finally sold out to Lian Fung, a big Hong Kong-based conglomerate in 2007. I was sort of went from summer to autumn career-wise, and we had always seen uh, what happens in the States. We'd always watch closely any development there. And we started the factory shops in the UK. The original factory shops was us. We started outlet shopping. When we sold Peter Black, I was introduced by a venture capitalist to two blokes who had lived in the States and had a shopping channel business. And we backed them, and uh, the business was called High Street TV. I just wanted to ask about that because, uh, I mean, from an English perspective, uh, these things can be regarded as a little bit, uh, I mean, English people are rather snooty about these things, and uh, selling things on TV and that type of thing is rather looked down on. Was, Was that reaction you had, or was it a success from the start? This product was a success from the start, but you make a good point. You know, there are two sorts of shopping channel. There's the QVC model, where um, it's filmed live to a live audience. I always thought I'd be good on QVC. Or or there's our version, where we show infomercials, information commercials. And High Street TV got the rights to uh, Nutribullet from the States. We always tried to get the rights to the best sellers in the States. And High Street TV's success was that it wasn't just sold through the television channels, of which we had three. The the story, it's an amazing story. From nothing in 2007 to 2014, the sales got up to over £70 million. And the reason was that we attacked the market on all fronts. We had shopping channels, we had internet, we sold off the page, and uh, our products were are in 
over 7,000 retail units. I'm quite interested in your journey from being in your dad's business to then going into being an entrepreneur and running a business. You know, you sold your business for £48 million. Did you find that having that in the bank made it easier to launch a startup? And would you say you experienced the same kind of difficulties as other entrepreneurs would have? When uh, my, my brother and I went into the family business, um, we had it was a very small, we had sales of two million. And uh, we've been right round the track. My father died tragically when we were quite young. He always said it should be called Thomas and Gordon Black and, and Father Limited. <laughs> um, and we... We really, um, my parents came from Germany before the war. They, they, from an affluent background, everything was lost. And therefore, we were always insecure. And I suppose one of the big advantages is that we always reinvented ourselves in line with changes in the market. Originally, we made shopping bags and slippers. Shopping bags were killed by the arrival of polythene bags and slippers, with the demise of the outside loo and the arrival of fitted carpets. <laughs> and uh, we always tried new ventures. We went into factory shops. We saw that in the States. Uh, we helped market, introduce Adidas in the UK. We got the rights to make Adidas bags. And being a public company has its advantages and disadvantages, but it enabled us to grow faster. We were never going to be a family business. We always knew that we'd sell sometime or other. So I had a very broad experience, and um, I still love the game of business. By the time we sold the business in 2007, through acquisitions and share sales, although people thought we owned the business, in fact, we only owned as a family about 15% of it. You talked there a little bit about how you you pivoted into different industries fairly regularly. Um, I mean, is there a process that you go through when you're trying to determine which industry or which sector to approach, or was it fairly kind of natural? Well, we, um, Marks and Spencers were 40% of our business. We had a very close relationship with them based on, a, on mutual trust and integrity. And we were lucky um, at that time in the early mid-70s, Marks and Spencers were just in food and clothing. And uh, we saw an opportunity to take them into other areas like footwear, toiletries and cosmetics. We would say that arrogance is a cardinal sin. We always knew that um, we had to reinvent ourselves. And we always tried, we always had the courage, I guess, to try things and also the courage to assess and back off if they weren't uh, if they weren't successful. And how did guess, you know what was going to be the next big thing? Well, we saw things in the States. We saw factory shops. We saw the rise of vitamins and natural remedies. We started Peter Black Healthcare. So we always had a, we had a cosmopolitan upbringing and we realized that the global economy is a reality and we looked for trends abroad. Um, and I think one... One of the fundamentals we've got is that one realizes one only has X amount of, of management resource and financial resource. And the trick is to aim it at the best target. And there are certain boxes that we always 
wanted to have ticked. It had to have any new project had to have margin capability. It had to have scale. And it was good if it had an international dimension. So we had a sort of format for assessing new projects. And and on the flip side, how did you know when to give something up or when to move out of a market? Well, if it wasn't going well, um, if it was um, not going to be the right area to be in, uh, in the when the economy was in a certain uh, state of health. For instance, we had um, a home furnishings business where we made furniture and lighting, Marks and Spencers, and we appreciated um, in the late 90s when interest rates were going up that these weren't essentials for people. And uh, we therefore decided then to prune the tree ahead of the game and concentrate on products which were more, nothing's recession-proof, but which were more recession-resistant. So it, Does that make sense? It, yeah. I mean, in a yes. way, it's a guessing game. Well, it's, a, it's an informed guessing game in that we looked ahead and tried to put any product area we had into context of what the economy would be and what was happening internationally. Most of what you've uh, talked about in your book relates to your brain, but what can people learn about as far as your business style? No, I think that one must be, it's good to be insecure and one must analyse one's business all the time in the context of the economy. and One must look at growth areas. There's a very thin line between success and failure. And um, we wanted to be in, as I say, we wanted to direct our resource where we could get the maximum return. You must be in a business area where you can get scale. Um, so you're in everyday home products or consumer items. So the the, the chairs, the tables, the the you know the, the the kitchen utensils, things like that. Things which you everybody has to have. Yeah. Well, if money's tight, people are still going to have shoes. They're still going to use toiletries and cosmetics, but they might delay on buying items of furniture or doing up their home, and therefore we pruned the tree and tried to concentrate on businesses which would do well regardless of the state of the economy. Um, I think that's the main point. But in terms of your own, your own char- the character of the businessman or the businesswoman themselves, um, the determination um, and the, um, the, the way of being able to, let's say, manage other people, that also comes into it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, we're very strong on, on teamwork. Um, I don't like the cult of the individual. And we worked hard, partly inspired by Marks and Spencers, to build a team. Um, and we used our uh, our main office in, in Yorkshire as a sort of Jesuit seminary to train people. And as we opened factories in different parts of the country and abroad, we tried to make sure that our culture was in place everywhere. Would you say you're more of a John Lewis than a Philip Green type? Yeah, well, you, you, it's a good question. And one of the main reasons I've written this book is it's cathartic for me because I'm very critical of some aspects of current business conduct. And I couldn't really write this book before because I was constrained. I didn't put my head above the parapet. There have been many books about eminent retailers, but very few by suppliers. And the reason is that they were frightened of the repercussions of telling their side of the story. And, uh, yeah, um, 
I'm, I'm horrified by what goes on when I contrast it with when we were building the business. As I said, my father died when we were quite young. And Marks and Spencers, led by Lord Seif, had a, an amazing relationship with us. Um, they gave us the confidence to invest and therefore produce outstanding product. That relationship they had with their core suppliers was the, probably the main reason both businesses prospered. Every year, Marks and Spencer's market share of different product sectors went up. They didn't need to, to advertise. What's your view on Marks and Spencer's now? I mean, it's having its problems with women's wear and another, other lines that were its core offerings. Well, I think that Marks and Spencer's missed out on, as I said earlier, I believe that everyone should attack the market in as many ways as possible. And Marks and Spencer's, I think, was slow to uh, to introduce their their website and internet selling, and they allowed John Lewis to go past. The current head of Marks and Spencer's has come up through the ranks, and uh, he'll know what was good in the past. And um, you know, I wish him the best in in restoring their fortunes. But isn't the retail area now an impossible one? It's a race to the bottom in terms of prices. Uh, competition is rife. You've got uh, the internet, online retailers also driving prices down. Um, aren't you glad that you're not actually operating uh, Peter Black uh, you know, in, in this day and age? Well, you're right. I'm on a mission to put across my strong belief that good behaviour is good business. And I feel... There's the state of the relationship between retailers and suppliers now is uh, is like armed neutrality or a state of, of war, and uh, I think that's in no one's no one's interest. So that's There's like Marmite. The, that's like the Marmite Gate situation. Yeah. Well. Uh, uh, yeah. In a way, but I think this race to the bottom is very dangerous. In my opinion, um, price is only one component of value. Uh, Marks and Spencer's service, uh, design, quality are equally important. Do you think they've slipped since you were working with them? I think they've got a challenge to, to move with the times, but they obviously aren't as strong in the market as they were previously. I think the fact that John Lewis' um, internet proposition is so easy to navigate, that's been a big plus, and I think Marks and Spencer's have fallen behind in that, that area. You, you started off by training with Marks & Spencer's. You worked in Marks & Spencer's for a while. Do you think it's important for people who work in family businesses to have cut their teeth elsewhere? Yeah, I think it's important they don't go straight into the business. There's a good story in Yorkshire of the Yorkshireman who takes his son Rupert into the mill on a Monday morning and says, good morning, Smith. This is my son Rupert who's come to start at the bottom for a few days. <laughs> I, I think that... Um, uh, no one should go straight into a family business. That's too narrow a background. They must, it must be broadened. But my brother and I decided at an early stage that we wouldn't be a family business. He's got four boys. Um, we've got two girls and a boy. My sister in the States has got four boys. Feeding husbands and wives, the politics would have been impossible. <laughs> and, um, Imagine those Christmas dinners. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, we wouldn't have grown at the rate we did if all the um, if all the best jobs had gone to members of the family. Um, we were able to attract good management, and uh, um, 
no member of the next generation really stayed in the business. And um, I, I think it's, there's no right or wrong. There are some very successful family businesses, and uh, they and I wish them well. But it's difficult to endure, in my view. And the fact that we were a public company meant that we could give people options, which was a good, a major attraction. And also that we were a family, uh, public company. We could use, we had a currency in shares to, to grow. And we grew organically and by acquisition. How was your relationship with your dad while you and your brother were beginning to take over? Did, you, did your dad ever find it hard to trust you? Or was it was it fairly easy? Well, my, I read history at university, and my father always said that was as close to footwear as he could find. <laughs> but what, my father was really enlightened. He wasn't well when I came into the business, and he didn't cling on to power at all. He wanted us to get into trouble for the mistakes we made rather than didn't make. And he appreciated that the business had to go from a small um entity controlled by him to a more structured approach which could, would enable us to grow in the future and he was very encouraging and um, very supportive very open-minded and I, um, I always very much value the way he handled us in the early stages. In the book you say your dad wasn't completely sold on floating on the stock market how did you persuade him that it was the right way to go? Well I think that he understood the logic of it and in every subject, we, there's a big difference between argument and debate. We debated it, and he saw the merits of it. The reason he was against it is that he came from an affluent background in Germany, and he lived through the German inflation where you collected your, your wage with a wheelbarrow. And uh, that made him more interested in sort of palpable assets than any form of, um, any form of paper or... Uh, shares or etc but he it wasn't his his way of doing it but again he accepted it was the right course for the business to follow and what about introducing new practices did you find it difficult to persuade him that new technology or new ideas were worth adopting was he quite set in his ways no absolutely not he was we were brought up in a fairly cosmopolitan way we speak languages he was all for um all for trying things. I remember once I was in Germany and I saw this new range of bags made out of a polyurethane material. And so I on the spot ordered £10,000 worth of the material. And I had a bit of trepidation breaking the news to my father. And I went in and explained it to him. And he said, you idiot, you should have ordered £100,000 worth of material. <laughs> Different. So he was he was a marvellous influence. Sounds like he wasn't somebody who'd f suffer falls gladly, but d at the end of the day did actually uh, sympathise with mistakes, which is an unusual combination, isn't it? He was a very intelligent man. He was quite shy. Um, you know, I'm very proud of what he achieved. He came here. Um, our name was Schwarzschild, which means black shield. And I guess, you know, they came from the same street in Frankfurt, that the Red Shields came from Rothschilds. I always say we went into footwear, they went into banking. They did a bit better than us. Well, but, um, marginally. He, uh, yeah, but he, he was a great guy and he maintained an interest in the business uh, until he, he, he died, really. And what would your advice be to those who are encountering resistance in family businesses? Because, you know, 
some people find it very hard to hand over to their kids. I'm keen to pass on my experiences um, and what I've learned to as many people as possible. And I always say we've got, we really have humility. Any success we had, we made more good decisions than bad, but only just. And I hope some of what I've written, it's not a textbook for young entrepreneurs, but it should be on their reading list because I hope if they follow our history, it gives them some tips here and there how to overcome um, resistance and sort of an, an, an anachronistic approach from the older generation. And then you finally sold Peter Black to a Chinese company. How did that feel and how did your dad feel about it? Well, my dad died a long time oh. before that. But um, um, the, I, I wanted our business to go to a good home. I wanted uh, a lot of loyalty to our team. And it really was an elegant exit in that Liam Fung are a global company uh, controlled by a family with very much the same standard as us. And it gave our key players the opportunity to play on a bigger stage. And um, it went to a very good home. And I think that uh, it's a model for the future. Um, Peter Black, the whole business has grown now enormously in the in the. Um, what is it? Eight years since we did the deal, and you do believe that, you, and you do believe that China is the, going to be the big economy in the twenty first century, or will continue to be. I think it's the Asian Asian century. We brought to them product product knowledge and marketing, and they had low cost production. So in a way, two and two made five. And I think this will be a model a lot in the future where European companies will join up with Asian companies, and. Um, you know, I'm very impressed by the Asian approach. They don't rush. Their recorded history goes back longer than ours. We first met Lee and Fung in 1999, and we finally did the deal in 2007. And I do think it's the Asian century. I think that one of the reasons they're going up and we might be struggling is that they have a colossal work ethic there. The family unit is still very strong, and they're less encumbered by a lot of... Uh, a mountain of legislation and rules and regulations. How do you think your dad would have felt about the sale? I think he would have always, he would have been absolutely on side. He said, uh, "You know, you you live." One of the things he said to us is, "You you you don't live to work; you work to live." And uh, he always said, although we were passionate about the business, never fall in love with it. One of the things that really struck me about the book was that a lot of the things. A lot of the stories in it kind of take place in the 70s and 80s when business was done on golf courses and, you know, you've got a great story about sealing a deal around a table at the Waldorf Astoria. Do you kind of miss that? Is it a good thing that still that doesn't necessarily still happen? Well, I again think that it's it's uh, it upsets me, the, the relationship between buyer and seller. Um, I really do believe that uh, it, it's more difficult the way business is conducted today. Um, but I, I don't want to give the impression when um, with, one did one's deal on the golf courses. But in, it's a much more instant world today. And uh, I, I think that there's a lot to be – one should pick the best from the past and, uh, and move forward. I think that uh, a lot of the problems – Retail is, is, 
is encountering today is a result of the change in relationship which existed some time ago. Okay, Gordon, we want to thank you so much for being for, for coming on the show today. And um, we, we want, want to end with one last question, which is what is your favourite smoothie? My favourite smoothie? Mm-hmm. Favourite Nutribullet smoothie? I've been asked all sorts of questions. A favourite smoothie? I suppose that anything, anything with bananas in it. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. Right. It, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very okay. much. Good to speak. With thanks to Gordon Black, this has been City AM Unregulated. You, you can get the Unregulated podcast on cityam.com or by subscribing with iTunes and Audio Boom. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.